Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, it's Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. It's Friday, October 7th. As Election Day gets even closer, as Florida is still digging out from what Governor Ron DeSantis has called a 500-year hurricane, it's our midterm election series, 30 Issues in 30 Days, Issue 10, Climate Change and the Race for Control of Congress. Now, this was always scheduled for today, just as a program note, well before Hurricane Ian struck and thrust the issue more to the forefront of the election season. In fact, we'll begin to set this up with a clip of Republican Florida Senator Rick Scott. We played this the other day, but it's so relevant to this topic that we'll play it again. He was on All Things Considered in August of last year. He's talking to NPR's Ari Shapiro about climate change and not denying that it's real, but not talking about preventing it either. We've got to focus on the impacts of climate change, but you've got to do it in a manner that you don't kill our economy. You're saying people need to survive hurricanes and get back to normal life. The UN is saying normal life is something of the past, and the future looks dire unless dramatic change happens now. Sounds like you're saying as long as it doesn't kill jobs or affect the economy. Well, I'm, what I think is we can do both. I think we can focus on the impacts of climate change and not put our jobs at risk and kill our economy. So that's Florida Senator Rick Scott with Ari Shapiro and All Things Considered last year, emphasizing how to adjust to the impacts of climate change rather than preventing it for the sake, he says, of jobs and the economy. And that's kind of typical of where Republicans running for Congress this year are on the issue. In June, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy released a climate strategy that the Washington Post described at the time as increasing domestic fossil fuel production. And if that sounds, well, counterintuitive, we'll try to explain. It also included, as the Post described it, as boosting exports of U.S. liquefied natural gas, boosting those exports, which proponents say is cleaner than gas produced in other countries. In addition, the House Republicans emphasized private sector innovations to reduce greenhouse gas emissions rather than controls on fossil fuels. So is there a Democratic and Republican way to fight climate change? Let's compare and contrast the two parties' approaches and how they're playing in this midterm election season and if Hurricane Ian has changed anything. With us now is Washington Post reporter Maxine Josolo, who wrote that story back in June and covers climate and other environmental issues generally. Her latest article is about the oil and gas industries themselves considering whether to endorse government clean fuel standards. Maxine, thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you for having me. That clip we played of Senator Rick Scott, Florida Republican, he's not up for re-election himself this year, so he's not a candidate in these midterms. But is the way he framed the climate challenge, the emphasis on adjusting to it and on jobs rather than preventing it, typical of the way many congressional Republicans approach the issue? I think it is typical, Brian. And I think it's no longer a tenable or common uh, 
position to have on the right that climate change is not real, that it's not being caused by humans. And I think a big reason for that is we're seeing its effects already right now. Um, as you noted, Hurricane Ian just hit Florida as a monster category, category uh, for a storm. And climate change scientists say uh, had made that storm in other hurricanes more intense because ocean waters are much warmer than they used to be. And that really turbocharges the storm as it moves over the ocean before making landfall. And so when a lot of Republicans now talk about climate change, they're not outright denying that it exists. Um, they know that we're seeing its impacts already, but a lot of them are not talking about the need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which are primarily caused by the burning of fossil fuels. They're talking more about how do we adapt to the impacts that we're already seeing? Why did Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, release a climate plan at all targeted for the midterm election season and embrace the reality of global warming as a national posture rather than do what we sometimes see in conservative media, what Trump spent a lot of his presidency doing, one way or another calling it a, ho a hoax, or a vast exaggeration. We see how much inclination there is to believe Republican politicians when they say things like that about various topics. I think one potential explanation is that Republicans, at least according to some of the um, sources I talked to for my story in June when this plan came out, Republicans recognize that they can't just be against whatever congressional Democrats and the Biden administration are proposing on climate change and environmental and energy issues. They have to be for something. And so this was, I think, an attempt to carve out what the party broadly would support on these issues and not just say we're against everything that Democrats are doing. Um, I think you also see uh, polling showing that younger voters in both parties um, who obviously will be more affected by climate change and its impacts in their lifetime, as well as suburban voters um, becoming increasingly concerned about climate change and um, wanting their elected officials to do something about it. Now on jobs, I'm gonna play a campaign ad from one of the contentious races this year, the Senate race in Pennsylvania. And this is from Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman, who's running against Republican Dr. Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania. And from what I've read, Fetterman used to be for a fracking moratorium in his state, but apparently is not anymore. And this is an ad they're running called Climate Justice. And it says Climate Justice on the screen. But it's not actually about climate. Rather, it's about ground-level conventional pollution. Listen. Back in 2006, they wanted to run a four-lane interstate through a black or brown community that was already suffering historically high asthma rates. I called it environmentally racist policy. And I was the only elected official in Western Pennsylvania to oppose this. And going forward, it's a constant struggle because communities like the ones that I live in have different environmental standards and outcomes. Environmental justice for every American is critical and my role as United States Senator would be informed by the 14 years as a mayor of a community that has faced many environmental injustice challenges. So certainly all the environmental injustice challenges that he talks about there are real, and obviously constituents are 
concerned about that depending on where they live. But that ad is labeled climate justice, and it wasn't about climate emissions. And my understanding is because it's such a jobs producer in parts of Pennsylvania where Fetterman wants votes, uh, he's backed off advocating a fracking moratorium in the state. I wonder if you're familiar with that campaign in particular or if that's emblematic at all after we've been talking about Republicans in the first part of this segment, um, the line that some Democrats have to walk on climate in the election season. I I am familiar with that race. Uh, I've written about it uh, during the primary um, before John Fetterman won his primary. Um, he and Connor Lamb uh, were considered uh, the two front runners in that race on the Democratic side uh, to challenge Mehmet Oz in the general election. And neither of them has expressed support for a fracking ban, um, in part because of, well, really purely because of the unique uh, political uh, ramifications of doing so in a state like Pennsylvania. Um, Pennsylvania is second only to Texas in natural gas production. And um, obviously there are environmental justice concerns with that, Um, you know, living near fracking operations, um, research has shown is linked to um, breathing in a lot of dirty air pollution, um, groundwater pollution, um, premature death and other health conditions from that. At the same time, um, labor unions and other advocates for fracking have noted that the fracking industry um, in Pennsylvania does support um, tens of thousands of jobs. And so um, in seeking to appeal to more moderate voters, Fetterman has had to um, back away from a fracking ban because he doesn't want to alienate those voters um, who who see it creating jobs in the state um, or creating an economic lifeline in the state. Yeah, so it sounds like Pennsylvania is in a relatively unique or unusual position um, with respect to the position that it puts a Democratic candidate in uh, because of all those jobs. Here's a tweet, though, from a listener that says, why isn't there more discussion and evidence on how green energy is great for jobs, creation, maintenance, and management of wind, uh, solar, kinetic, and biomass energies need humans to be involved and governments to subsidize them at least as equally as fossil fuels. What would you say to that listener who wrote in on Twitter? I would say uh, there absolutely is a discussion about Uh, clean energy, creating jobs um, coming from this White House and this administration. I think President Biden um, often likes to say that when he talks about combating climate change, he's talking about creating um, millions of good paying union jobs. And um, I think there's uh, estimates coming from uh, groups, uh, environmental groups that are supportive of this big climate law that Democrats just passed and President Biden just signed into law, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, showing that um, it will create a lot of jobs, um, whether it's uh, electricians who are going to be installing um, heat pumps and other um, climate-friendly appliances in people's homes, or it's people constructing wind turbines or installing solar panels. Um, there are those projections of, of green energy jobs of the future. Tom in Little Silver, New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Tom. Yep. Good morning. Uh, thanks for taking my call, and thanks, Brian, for doing this uh, segment every week. It's really important. Uh, the main point I want to make is that 
spite of the fact that this much uh, good action that will be taken in the Inflation Reduction Act, that one of the main things that we still should be considering extremely seriously is putting a carbon fee on uh, greenhouse gases, and that the best approach would be to refund that money as a dividend to all the citizens of our country so people would have the money to take action on their own with this carbon fee and uh, many modeling groups, including a group in Columbia University called En-ROADS, has done a lot of studies showing that if we don't put a carbon fee, we're not going to really take all the actions that we must take to address this crisis. That was the main point I wanted to make. Tom, thank you very much. And, you know, Maxine, obviously this conversation has been going on for for decades now. Um, John McCain, when he was running for president in 2008 against Barack Obama, they were actually on the same page on limiting the total amount of carbon that uh, industry and individuals would be allowed to produce in this country, right? They called it cap and trade, cap the total amount, let companies trade pollution credits, basically. Al Gore, once upon a time, talked about a carbon tax, like the caller is is discussing. And did, didn't you report on the energy industries themselves, fossil fuel industries, oil and gas, coming out for some kind of carbon tax not that long ago? Yes. Uh, so you're absolutely right. And um, the whole history of, of carbon pricing in the U.S. Um, is a long, long history. And uh, last year, the American Petroleum Institute, uh, the oil and gas industry's main lobbying arm, uh, came out in support of a carbon tax um, and the idea of taxing uh, heavy emitters, um, greenhouse gas emissions. Although there was some criticism at the time um, that the industry was supporting a carbon tax because they felt like it would never actually pass Congress, that there wasn't enough political support for the idea. And so it allowed them to appear as though they were for this very powerful climate policy, when in reality, that policy did not have a high chance of being enacted. Wow, that's um, worth lingering on for a second. I mean, what an act of greenwashing that would be. Is that the right word? Uh, if they are trying to bolster their image in a climate context by saying, wherefore the kind of the ultimate thing that we've been against for decades, a climate tax on our products, but they're saying that they're, I mean, a carbon tax on our products, but they're saying they're for it because they know it'll never pass. I mean, greenwashing is uh, something that I encounter all too commonly as a climate reporter. You see it coming from government, you see it coming from corporations. And um, in the case of uh, carbon tax, I think there's been a lot of reflection among climate experts after this big climate law, the Inflation Reduction Act passed about, okay, what can this tell us about the type of climate policy that can pass Congress? And for decades, a lot of people have been pushing for a carbon tax to pass Congress, um, but with little success, little to show for it. Um, as you mentioned, Al Gore tried. Um, there was the Waxman-Markey cap-and-trade bill that passed the House but died in the Senate about 10 years ago. And some folks have been reflecting that 
the approach taken in the Inflation Reduction Act is largely carrots, not sticks. And what I mean by that is offering uh, individuals and consumers and companies incentives in the form of tax credits and subsidies to transition to um, lower emissions, whereas a carbon tax is more of a stick. Um, it's punishing them if they don't reduce their emissions. And it really makes you question if a carbon tax is a viable political option in this country or if we're going to see more of the carrots approach instead. Do they have carbon taxes in other industrial countries? Do they have that in Europe or Japan, for example? Do they go at it in that way? So uh, there's uh, something related called, and this is getting kind of in the weeds of, of climate policy, there's something related called a carbon border adjustment mechanism or CBAM, which is something that the European Union has put in place. Um, and that's this idea that um, it's kind of like climate policy wrapped up in trade policy. The idea is that you tax uh, imported products from countries that have looser environmental standards and those products are made um, with higher emissions. Um, and so you're both um, inherently kind of putting a price on carbon, but also wrapping it up in this kind of protectionist trade policy. Before you go, your article this week was headlined, Oil and Gas Industries Top Lobbying Arm Considers Another Climate Policy. And apparently there was a meeting yesterday and they were thinking about uh, endorsing some kind of um, energy reduction or carbon, uh, sorry, fossil fuel reduction strategy. What did, what did they actually do? Yeah, so um, my latest article for the Climate 202 newsletter that I write for the Washington Post was about the American Petroleum Institute uh, having a meeting um, at, a, at a downtown D.C. hotel related to um, a clean fuel standard, which is a climate policy aimed at reducing emissions from transportation, um, primarily from cars and trucks. And I got a copy of the meeting agenda, which said that API was looking to hear about the potential benefits of this policy from automakers, from biofuel producers, um, from other industry interests with a stake in um, cutting emissions from transportation. Um, and it does seem to be uh, gaining traction as a policy that API might support um, after they backed a carbon tax last year. On the other hand, as you and I talked about earlier in the show, Brian, um, API faced some criticism when it came out in support of a carbon tax with folks saying um, it's easy for them to say they support it when it doesn't have a clear shot of passing Congress. And I think with a clean fuel standard, um, the same could be said to a lesser extent in that uh, there isn't legislation that's been introduced yet to establish a clean fuel standard, so it's still in the very uh, early stages. Last thing, there was a Survey USA to uh, survey, what, what do they call it? Survey USA poll, which found six percent of Americans or likely voters say the climate is their number one issue. And when you think about 6%, that certainly doesn't rival inflation or abortion rights or democracy in peril, but it's a slice of the electorate, 6%, that's greater than the margin of victory in many close swing district races. And and I wonder if if you have an observation on this, if you think they play as swing voters or more as 
Democrats, people on the left, who will either turn out or not bother to turn out if they don't think the Democratic candidate's position is strong enough, like Green New Deal. Um, But my understanding is that this is why Kevin McCarthy came out with a Republican climate position at all, it's because that's that 6% was was meaningful to him. And it turned, you know, and it's largely young voters who they want to attract. It's voters of color who they want to attract more. Um, so I wonder if you see that 6% number as playing in a certain way and whether it's swing voters who want to be assured that both parties are serious to some degree about climate or or whether it's, potential Democrats who will either stay home or not, and it's a turnout issue? That is a great question. And actually, it's good timing to ask me this because uh, I'm working on a piece um, that is about uh, a poll that the Washington Post and ABC News did together um, that found something similar. They found that about half of registered voters say climate change is either very important or one of the most important issues in their vote for Congress in the midterms, Um, although um, overall climate change still ranked below the six other issues that were tested in the poll, which included uh, the economy, abortion, crime, and immigration. Um, But um, among the voters who said climate was important, um, the results were divided largely along party lines, about eight and ten Democrats said climate change was at least very important in their vote um, compared with uh, just 27 percent of Republicans. So um, that's so different. What a partisan divide, right? 80 (laughs) percent compared to 27 percent saying it's an important issue to their vote. Yeah. So so the question you asked about um, the six percent in the other poll, I would imagine that is um, probably mostly Democrats as a result of um, the polling that The Post and ABC News did. Um, But I have heard uh, some big environmental groups um, like the League of Conservation Voters, when I talk to folks there, um, say that they are worried about um, Democrats who um, care about climate change um, being at risk of staying home on Election Day or not voting. And that's really important to reach those voters, um, educate them about the Inflation Reduction Act, educate them about how that bill could help them um, not only transition to clean energy, but lower their home electricity and utility bills um, and make sure that those people turn out. Maxine Jocelyn covers the environment for The Washington Post. Thanks so much for being our guest on Issue 10 of 30 Issues in 30 Days, Congressional Races and the Issue of Climate. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.